0: I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll be answering another round of listener questions. This is G4 from the Future in the Editing Room, not when I recorded this. Sorry, this is going to be a whirlwind of time travel for you because of how long it has been between when I recorded this and when I'm editing this now. So strap in! Apologies for the break, but I'm still here and alive. Well, barely. God's damn it, that joke didn't age well. Last semester of graduate school was exquisitely busy. Over the summer, I made a groundbreaking discovery that solved an 11-year-old problem in bacterial physiology, and my principal investigator encouraged me to push forward on the project at full speed. We are currently under two months away from publishing a research paper, for which I will be the first author. We already submitted for publication. We are collaborating with a lab in Germany to expand our findings. They were quite useful. They actually discovered a lot and I will likely be presenting these data at a scientific conference this upcoming summer. Hell no, Coronapocalypse-Magedna-cost had its way with that, but I was accepted to the conference before it was cancelled. Combined with my own classes, TA-ing for the first time, The little rat bastards called the police on me because my quiz was too hard. I'm not even exaggerating. We had to pursue academic integrity violations. I hate undergrads. And writing my first government grant, so by the way, please don't ever complain about giving taxes because it helps pay me to cure MRSA, I ended up working just about 70-hour work weeks all semester long. That being the case, I hope you can forgive me for having gone Dust One for a while. Dust One, duties, Status, Whereabouts, Unknown, Season 2 of Serial. Though the worst of it is over, Ha! <laughs> some recent changes in my personal life Further MUCK continue to leave muddied water in my future, so my episodes will still, in all likelihood, continue to be sporadic. You don't say. Sorry, that was my best meme voice at least for those who are familiar. Interestingly, I have been thinking about this for a while. The rate at which I put out episodes on each subject actually tracks with about the rate at which I progress on my own personal model railroad, and I somewhat want to keep it that way, because it's one thing to talk esoterically about the intricacies of benchwork or kit building, but it's another thing to first build benchwork and then kits before talking esoterically about the matters. So I think I'm going to keep it for a while in the same odd little holding pattern because it will allow me to become better informed on each of the subjects that I'm speaking about and therefore better inform you as to what you ought to do. But as always, the content should be evergreen. If you're following along with me in real time, I greatly appreciate your patience. Anyway, since it's January- Oh dear gods, I truly suck at this. If you're a new listener to the show who just packed up the new holiday train set and is interested in what to do next, then I would like to issue you a fond welcome. Now, to listener questions. First, listener Lee pointed out an oversight of mine all the way back in episode 3, Scale and Gauge. In that episode, I mused why n-scale used to be called triple O-scale, and Lee proffered an explanation stemming from an omission. In Lee's words... This simply stems from the Euroscale's natural progression downward in size. O triple O. And Lee then asked why I failed to address double O scale thank you so much for expressing your interest in the podcast, Lee. You're right that it would make sense with the progression of O to 00 to 000, given the European designation system. The original article I found describing what became n-scale actually described n-scale as triple-naught scale, three zeros. So my initial thought was that somehow related to the original not scale described earlier in the episode. However, in hearing your explanation, and given that this article was written in the American press, I'm willing to chalk up triple-naught to a typographical error and nuance lost. Across the Atlantic. Thank you for edifying us all on this. My failure to address OO scale possibly lies in my American background. As I very briefly alluded to in episode 2 in the section on the history of model railroading, the early hobby press arose around the time OO scale was being introduced into America and used their monthly magazines as a forum to discuss the aptitudes of HO versus OO. The thought was, at the time, that the scales were too similar to exist in duplicate, and a standardization would reduce competition of resources between the two scales. Most UK prototypes had a smaller loading gauge, which is the width of the train cars, used to determine the width of tunnels, bridges, parallel tracks, station platforms, and the like, than other prototypes, mostly European at the time. So some enterprising modeler decided, at the time, to take HO scale track, which already existed at the time, from mainland European trainsets, and scale up everything else from 1 to 87.1 to 1 to 76 scale, which would allow the modeler to more easily model small components such as locomotive valve gears. Thus, both 00 and HO scales run on the same 16.5mm gauge track. Though 00 does allow for models to be slightly bigger in the same space, it does leave them slightly disproportioned, with the track being roughly 7 scale inches undersized. And ultimately, 00 was jettisoned from the American market for that and other reasons. In my episode on scales, since the majority of countries use HO scale, I decided to focus on that instead of its half-sibling, OO. For my listeners whom live in a majority OO scale country, basically everything I say for HO would be the same for OO, not in the least of which being the track, hence my simplification. Nonetheless, though, thank you for bringing this to my attention, Lee. I hope this clears up any questions on the subject. While we were emailing, Lee sent another question. In relation to a track setup and a yard, I understand the importance of the lead track into the yard, the yard tracks to move cars around, and the ready track. What I'm wondering is for operational interest and enjoyment, is it better to have the interchange track coming near to the yard from a location off the layout, or have it come in at further away stations, to have cars picked up and dropped off there instead? I'm just wondering, from your experience, which is more interesting and fun? Lee, some of that depends on the prototype you're modeling. The simplest answer is that an interchange would be closest to wherever the two railroads cross. If the two railroads were in a dense urban area, some effort might be made to bring the interchange next to a major yard for convenience, though seldomly would it truly be inside yard limits. Major interchanges distant from yards might also have small yards associated with them, if nothing else than to accommodate more cars. My personal favorite idea for adding interest to layout operations would be to have an inter yard transfer, wherein a train from the other railroad full of cars to be interchanged would come down the interchange and, under authority of timetable or train order, travel along the main line for a bit until it reached a major yard. There, with the help of a yard switcher, the foreign road locomotive would drop off its cut of cars and pick up a cut destined for its own railroad. Thence, it would repeat the process, taking its new train back along the main line to the interchange where it would disappear back to its home railroad. If this option wasn't available to you, I generally espouse putting interchanges far enough away from the yard to make a separate crew go play fetch. The Facebook group has also been gaining activity recently. Dan asks, what are your experiences and opinions on feeder wires, bus wires, and connecting them? Personally, I use 14-gauge solid wire for bus, 18-gauge solid wire for feeders, and 3M suitcase connectors. I solder the feeders to the rail. Dan, in my opinion, anywhere from 12 to 16 inch gauge is good for a bus, depending on your application, and feeders can actually be as small as 22 gauge. I absolutely love suitcase connectors myself, but something must also be said for the ability of the screw-top nut-type wire connector to simultaneously connect up to a dozen wires in a single connection, so keep a good stock of those handy for yards and other areas where there are plentiful adjacent tracks so that you can minimize excessive tappings of the bus wires. For soldering feeder wires, you should always affix them to the underside of the rail by cutting away a tie, because this helps keep them out of the way and remain unobtrusive, as opposed to on the outside of the rail, which is obvious, distracting, and unrealistic. The general rule for dropping a feeder every three feet I think somewhat misses the point. Every rail, for sake of reliability, should have a solid, soldered connection to the bus. This could be done by dropping a feeder from every single piece of track, or you could drop a feeder from every third or fourth piece of track and solder all the unfeedered rail lengths to the adjoining feedered piece. However, don't go nuts soldering every single rail joint on the layout, because some gaps need to be left open to allow for seasonal expansion and contraction and prevent track warping. Dan also pointed out that terminal box can be useful for other wiring applications that require reversibility or numerous connections among different systems. Anonymous asked, what is the best way to calculate grades on my layout? Should I steer clear of very steep grades? Remember, the grade refers to how steep a slope is, so a higher grade indicates that your train's engine will have to work that much harder in order to get up it. The best way to go about figuring out how steep your grade should be is to decide on the number of cars that you expect your engine to pull and to take a look at how much space you have. Then use a grade calculator for a fast and easy way to find the optimum grade for your railroad setup. Personally, I'm quite glad that this question was brought up, because as a scientist, it also touches on a few other topics that I, as a TA, wanted to impart to my students. Many model railroaders, when thinking about grades, can be quite scared of doing mathematics, but I absolutely promise you that it is not hard at all. All that you need to know to calculate grades is that a percentage is any number over 100. Let me make this concrete. A 3% grade would be a gain of 3 inches in height every 100 lateral inches that you proceed along the track. A 4% grade would be 4 inches gained over that same 100 inches, and a 1% grade would be only 1 inch in height gained over those same 100 inches. So, very simply, the only mathematics that you have to do is one simple equation. The percentage equals the rise over the run. So, in order to figure this out, you only need two pieces of information. If you decide that the maximum grade on your layout will be 4%, then that's one piece of information, and you can put 0.04 on the left side of your equation. On the right side, you then have the rise over the run. So say that you have a distance of 50 inches. In order to figure out how much rise your track would have in that distance, you simply take the 50 over to the other side of the equation and multiply 50 by 0.04. When we do this, the math shows that at a 4% grade, for every 50 inches traveled, you will gain 2 inches in height. Now, say that you have two tracks that pass over one another, and you need to figure out how much distance is required in order to get one track over top the other. You can use generally accepted practices or NMRA gauges, both available on the internet, to figure out the minimum clearance height required for one track to pass over another. For example, in HO scale, it's about three inches from the railhead up, and that accommodates every single type of HO scale car available. Now, let's say that we have a roadbed and subroadbed too, so let's add a half an inch of play in there. So that means that these two tracks have to be three and a half inches apart, railhead to railhead. So that is our rise. Then let's say that you want to have a fairly easy grade on this one, maybe a 2% grade. So that will be our percentage. The only variable remaining is the run, uh, the part that is underneath the 3.5 inches. So what we do now is we multiply the run to the other side, and then divide the percentage back to the side with the rise, which gets us the equation of 3.5 over 0.02, 0.02 being a 2% grade. When we multiply this out, we get 175 inches, which is about 14.6 feet. So therefore, if your track is starting on the bottom and it needs to go over to the top, it has to loop around 7 feet out and 7 feet back before it can cross over top itself. So from this, you can obviously tell that it's very difficult for trains to gain elevation quickly. The generally accepted response in model railroading is that you should never have a grade steeper than 4%. So that isn't too problematic for the most part, but if you really want to squeeze a lot of track into a given area, you obviously have to be cautious. My advice, especially for beginners, grades are quite possibly one of the areas of the hobby that causes the most frustration, and it's better safe than sorry. At least have your main track such that it can go around the layout without having too many egregious grades. Because, say, you do have some sort of horrible grade on a branch line, like... I did once, you can at least still run trains and then abandon or not play with the branch line because it doesn't work. If this steep grade, however, is on your main line, well then, sorry, you're out of luck and you have to start your layout all over again. So, to answer your question, Anonymous, you can calculate grades with that simple equation. Don't be afraid to sit down with some mathematics and work it out. Um, Or, if you're really lazy, I'm sure you can find something on the internet that's a calculator for grades. And also, try never to go above 4% And also keep things simple, especially for your beginner layout. Matthew from Philadelphia asks, What is the difference between a number 4, number 6, and number 8 turnout? Thank you for your support, Matthew. Turnouts are numbered by the sharpness of their diverging angle. For train set turnouts, the diverging track is actually a smooth curve all the way through, so that a turnout can perfectly replace a piece of curved track in a circle, which allows you to do much more with the limited geometry of fixed shape track pieces of finite quantity. On a side note, this fact is sometimes utilized by modelers. If a space is very tight and a normal turnout won't fit, the constantly diverging quality of train set turnouts will usually help to get tracks into tighter spaces by having the diverging track diverge slightly more but without sacrificing operational reliability. Back on track, pun fully intended. Normal turnouts are more wedge-shaped. They curve only at the switch points and, unlike train set turnouts, are straight by the time that they reach the frog basically making them a triangle. The sharpness of the diversion is quantitated by arbitrary units set up like a triangle. If the turnout diverges one arbitrary unit away from the main every 4 arbitrary units it advances, it is a number 4. If it diverges one arbitrary unit for every 8 arbitrary units it advances, it is a number 8 turnout, and so on. Thus, the smaller the turnout's number, the sharper it is. Each type of turnout has a preferred application based on the prototype. Sharper turnouts, like numbers 4 and 5, are usually for tighter functions, like in switching areas, whereas broader turnouts, like number 8s, are primarily for high-speed, high-reliability applications on a mainline. As a modeler, you can use any type of turnout you want anywhere, but it should be viewed as a fine balancing act. The smaller the turnout number, the shorter the turnout, and thus the more track you can fit into a space. However, the smaller the turnout number, the sharper the diverging angle, and the more likely trains are to derail on the turnout. Like on the prototype, I advise you to use larger turnouts wherever you can, especially on the mainline. As a beginner, you will most likely need to only use number 4 and 6 turnouts, and in general manufacturers more often than not stick to those numbers. Matthew also asks, how do I know what the minimum curve radius of my trains are? This is a tough question to answer, because it depends not only on your scale, but also the trains you want to run as well. Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine, in one of their first issues, did an excellent expose on turning radius and came up with an innovative way to define it. The author's solution was to test for curve radii in terms of multiples of car length. They found that, through experimentation, the tightest possible radius a car can go through is normally two times the car's length. Reliable operation starts on a curve of two and a half times the car length, the car will look realistic from the outside of a curve of a radius three times its length, and the car will look realistic on the inside of a curve of a radius four times its length. Thus, to determine your ideal minimum curve radius, simply measure the length of the longest car you wish to run and work from there. This system actually works out pretty well in terms of the established radius recommendations. For example, in HO scale, let's go back to our good friend the EMD F7. In real life, the A unit was 50 feet 8 inches long, which is 608 inches. Divided by 87.1, the HO scale model will be 6.98 inches long, which we can round up to 7 inches. Twice of 7 is 14, thrice is 21, and frice is 28. And yes, I looked that up. Frice is in fact a word. In standard practice, the minimum radii are 15, 18, 22, and 24 inches, which are all in the ballpark of the 2-3 times car length multiplier. While we're on the subject, it's worth bringing in easements to the discussion. Easements are basically pre-turns that make it easier for equipment to go around tight curves. The best way to view easements is the difference between max and PCs. I'm serious, hear me out. If you look at the corner of PC laptops, you will often see a specific point when the straight portion ends and the curve begins. This is the equivalent of taking a circle and cutting it into fourths, and then adding straight lengths along each side, thus making a rectangle with rounded edges. However, if you look at an Apple laptop, iPad, or phone, you will never be able to point at a single spot where the curve begins. And interestingly, this is also the same for app icons in iOS. This is because Apple uses squared circles, or squircles, instead of rounded rectangles. The idea is that, with a rounded rectangle, you go straight, then turn with a constant curvature, then go straight again. Whereas with a squircle, you go straight, then you start to increase your curvature just a hair, then you increase your curvature a little more, then you get into the curve proper, and then you reverse the process back down to a straight again. With squircles, there are no sudden jumps in curvature, and derivative of the curvature is a smooth line served by one higher-order equation as it approaches asymptotes. For those who want to learn more, the marvelous design podcast, 99% Invisible, has a fascinating article on the subject on their website. The same principle serves true for model railroading. Since most derailments come from jarring changes in track geometry, like those found on PCs, we can avoid derailments and coax cars into tighter turns by slowly, carefully, and imperceptibly starting the turning process before we get to the area of maximum dynamic lateral pressure. This is called an easement. Amazingly, for all the twaddle of mathematics and product design, easements are actually very easy to implement. As is readily shown in the design process of La Sagrada Familia in Spain, materials are frequently under forces that will drive them to adopt shapes predicted by calculus. For those of you that are STEM illiterate, I present to you the bent stick method. All you need to do is to draw your curve radius at its desired location, offset your tangent track from your curve radius by 25 to 5% of your curve radius, take a yardstick, Affix it with temporary screws to be straight over top the tangent track centerline a distance of two-thirds your curve radius away from the curve, and bend the stick towards the curve itself. Then, mark down the line of the stick bend. This line should be the centerline of your track as it approaches the curve. As an example, Model Railroad Magazine recommends that, for a curve of 18 inches, your tangent should be offset by about half an inch from the curve, and the easement length should be 12 inches. While easements are slightly more effort to implement, I recommend their use for all curves of a radius near two times a car length, as this can dramatically increase reliability for tighter curves. Going back to the subject of minimum radii, for beginners, I would strongly recommend sticking to a 2.5 times car length radius or above, as the two times radii are usually only for very tight situations, like sharp switching districts. As with turnouts, you should balance between your desire for more track and your need for reliability. On both subjects, I advise you to keep all tighter radii off the main line. If the lead to a spur causes regular derailments, then you can solve the problem by not using the spur. If the main line causes regular derailments, the entire railroad is screwed. However, if you want a simpler answer than all of these mathematical calculations, here are the standard, generally accepted minimum radii in the major scales. Keep in mind two things. First, they may not accommodate all equipment, as longer equipment will obviously need broader curves. But, conversely, it is still possible to get some shorter equipment to go around even smaller radii if necessary and well-built. The generally accepted minimum radius is 7 inches in Z scale, 9.75 inches in N scale, 18 inches in HO scale, and about 22 inches in both S scale and ON30. O and G scale are somewhat outliers, because they both have highly toy-like and more realistic factions. The toy-like end of the spectrum has a minimum radius of 13.5 and 24 inches in O and G scales respectively, whereas the scale models have minimum radii of 72 and 44 inches in O and G scales respectively. I don't exactly know why the magnitude flipped for those two, but I did research this. Our final question comes from, I believe, the Facebook page, but I can't for the life of me recall precisely where or find whom from, so I am sorry for forgetting your name. This person said that they were new to the hobby and wanted to know which manufacturers make the best model trains. Back in the positively ancient days of the 1970s, there used to be some manufacturers that were decidedly high-end and some that were not quite so much. Some of the most infamous were Tyco, Model Power, and Lifelike, and others, such as Athern and Bachmann, were known for being merely average. The former three were always viewed as a mixed bag, because their reasonably priced, abundantly available equipment probably made model trains available to many more people than whom would have been able to cheaply dabble in the hobby otherwise. However, the equipment's lower quality probably frustrated equally as many people into not pursuing the hobby further. As a result of this, Tycho went out of business, model power has shrunken almost to the point of oblivion, and Atherne has discontinued its Blue Box line of simple freight car kits. You can tell what the hobby thinks of Tycho, given the literal oceans of old Tycho freight cars that plague the booths of many train shows. However, when history finally started to catch up to the modern era in the late 1990s and early 2000s, an interesting thing started happening. As the hobby started to shift more towards scale models, these companies all opened up premium brands—Lifelike making Proto 2000, Athern making Genesis, and Bachmann making Spectrum. Because of Proto 2000, Lifelike was eventually saved from the fate of Tyco and bought up by Walther's, the Amazon.com of model railroading. As such, there is not necessarily any one manufacturer I would strongly steer you away from, and there's not necessarily any one manufacturer that I preferentially patronize over any other. In general, you do get what you pay for. If you're willing to shell out several hundred dollars for a locomotive, you'll probably end up with a good one. If you're stingy with your cash, expect equipment of lower quality and more frequent maintenance requirements. Product reviews will usually give you good indications of the quality of specific products, but other than that I can really give you a few generalizations. I hope that, with this episode, I have answered more beginner questions and helped to grow this community, and also explained my absence for uh, more than half a year. If you have a question or comment, want to join the Facebook community, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. I would also like to thank Pedro Reyes, patron of the show, for upping his contribution and providing several very nice emails and kind comments. If you like the show, please give us a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is Brass Pounder, now a telegraph thank you so much for listening and for your patience. Happy modeling.